0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Tiago Forte is the CEO of Forte Labs and also the author of a brand new book called Building a Second Brain, a proven method to organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential. In this conversation, we talk about building a second brain, various productivity hacks, why so much information in the world may not actually be a good thing, how you can unlock that creativity, why having instant access to information that you've already learned is incredibly important, and what the second brain can do for you. I really enjoyed this conversation with Tiago, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Once you get done listening, find us on Twitter and let us know what did you like, what did you not like, what did you agree with, and what did you disagree with? We really enjoy the discussion after these conversations. All right, let's get in this episode with Tiago. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm here with Tiago. Uh... I first came around to this idea of building a second brain. And when I saw it, I thought it had something to do with robotics or, uh, or automation. I was like, oh, of course, they're going to take uh, brain computer inter- uh, interfaces and they're going to put them in our brains and we're all going to be cyborgs running around. Uh, and then I clicked <laughs> 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 and realized that, no, this was much more about productivity, note taking and, yeah. and kind of systemized organization, mm. uh, which in some ways is almost more interesting for uh, the average person. Mm how did you come around to realizing that this was going to be something that you personally needed, right? Because I, I think that like you used the system and now you're out teaching other people how exactly they can do this.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, this the, the term second brain came much later, but years before I had that, that term, that name, uh, it was a medical condition. It was a, a debilitating uh, pain and tension in my throat, in my neck that started one day when I was 22. Out of the blue, there was no cause, no reason that I could ever determine. Uh, And it just slowly got worse over weeks, months, and then years, Um, ultimately leading to like this all-consuming pain um, that was just like the darkest, hardest period of my life. And so I first started taking notes because I was seeing all these doctors Mm -hmm. and all these different specialists, and they were telling me all these different things, sometimes contradictory, sometimes things that I had to go research and learn about, sometimes things I had to try right? Like little experiments. Um, The medication I was taking actually affected my cognition and my memory. So like, this is the crazy thing about your body. The very moment that I needed to intake and make sense of all this information, my mind was at its lowest point it was this contradiction. And so I just had to externalize, I had to offload all of those notes, all of those, all of that data to first paper, and then paper got unmanageable I had a stack like this thick. Uh, I started doing it on the computer. And over a long period of time, I started using that same system of note taking for my studies, to do my writing to manage my productivity and eventually to start a business. So What's fascinating to me about
0: this whole thing is uh, there's a lot of science uh, that I've read. Uh, if you write things down, you will remember them better, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, if you're reading, you take notes, there's better recall, there's better, uh, better memory. But I don't think that you're actually going through this process, helping people build these systems so that they can remember the information. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems more of that you want to build a second brain or a database mm-hmm. full of the information that means you don't have to actually remember it and therefore you can query it later is that is that like a fair way to think about that
1: yeah so memory is the gateway okay memory is just the entry point because and it's a great entry point because we have just terrible memories as humans that is one of the things that that computers do already so much better than we can ever do right like what can the human brain remember like five to seven digits of a phone number at most Mm -hmm. Um, And so you start there, you offload, I mean, just details, your calendar, how useful is it to have a calendar, your to do list, your notes from meetings and from calls, your notes on books, it's like a simple like external storage medium. But once you start doing that, that's just the beginning. Because once you've offloaded, weird things start to happen. Like, for example, you can notice patterns. When it's all that information is outside of your brain, you can look at it, you can evaluate it, you can think about it, you can share it with others, get their feedback, you can move it around, you can annotate it, you can add images, and eventually it, it starts with memory, but it becomes a creativity enhancer, productivity enhancer, gives you insights, gives you profound revelations. Like When you can see your life, the data that makes up your life in external form, you can't help but have insights about who you are and, and what you want.
0: Yeah, I think it's David Allen. I saw a quote uh, in one of your pieces where he said, uh, "Your brain is for having ideas, yes, not for holding them." And yes. I thought that was such like a powerful uh, uh, quote because really we don't think of uh, the brain as having. Two different functions. Yes. Most people, you said, hey, what's your brain for? They're like, thinking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, your brain is the computer that holds all of the information and memory that uh, you have. And so, do you see a uh, um, kind of an unlock Mm -hmm. by being able to kind of kick out all of the uh, uh, memory and and information saving capacity to the second brain? Does that free up kind of your original brain for more creativity, more thinking, more idea generation?
1: I I absolutely think it does. I think it's interesting. Unlock is the, I think I might have that in the subtitle, the word unlock. It's like, it's this interesting thing where, you know, I'm in the world of like, you could call it self-help, advice, self-improvement. And there's so much good advice out there on anything, anything you want to improve. Your health, you know, your relationships, the way you think, your money, endless advice. And much of it is quite good. But it's like the average person is so underwater. They have so little bandwidth there's like no bandwidth left. You can't even make a change. You can't even adjust how you're doing things if you are at 110% capacity. So one way I think of it is like to make any change in any aspect of your life, it has to start with offloading. You need to put something out of your brain just to free up the space, like you said, Mm -hmm. to just like reflect, to just think, to just have ideas. Until you do that, you are, you know, you're underwater and you really can't consider new options.
0: So it feels like, uh, I'm starting to better understand this a little bit. There's like, outside of your brain, there's just mm-hmm. this flood of information. You're mm-hmm. just constantly bombarded with all this information. Then, right now, people are doom-scrolling mm-hmm. or or uh, reading as much as they can, every article, everything. They, mm-hmm. they just want as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. But then they have to keep that in their brain, mm-hmm. and that's what's almost like clogging up, and you don't have time to stop, mm-hmm. think, do all the stuff. Mm-hmm. So really what you're saying is like, hey, yes, there's all this information available. And Mm. even if you want to read it, just go ahead and keep kind of storing it away in the second brain Mm -hmm. and then use the brain that you have right now to think. Exactly. When you think of that information kind of onslaught that we all face every single day, uh, should people be consuming all of that? Or do you actually think part of it is like if you just kind of sidestep or avoid all of that, that actually helps on the idea generation creativity and kind of brain processing, uh, if you will?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I think, so from all the information we're consuming, there's always a signal in the noise, right? There's no way the, by some estimates, 30 gigabytes of content that you're consuming, that you're exposed to each day, there's no way that's all equally valuable. There's, I, I often use the rule of thumb, 1% there's the 1% of all that information that has the most value. So first of all, it takes some discernment. You have to think about like when you listen to say a two hour podcast, what are the few quotes, the few ideas, the few recommendations that actually directly apply to your life now. Mm -hmm. But once you've done that, that thinking to discern what that is, just save it. Always be saving the the 1%. And very quickly, like in a matter of days or weeks, you're going to look at, it's almost this like library of knowledge. It's like a portfolio of thinking that you've done that is totally unique to you. Not one human being on the planet has that same collection. Mm -hmm. And then you have a source to draw from to create whatever you're creating Mm -hmm. instead of doing what I think a lot of people do, which is terrifying, sitting at a blank page, a blank screen, and trying to come up with a good idea, Mm -hmm. which is the recipe to to get nowhere. Yeah. I do feel
0: like... The more content you consume, the more ideas you have. Mm -hmm. So I always joke uh, people will ask me, um, hey, you just tweeted like 20 times in like two hours. Like, what's going on? I'm usually reading,
1: mm, right? Yes. Like
0: I'm consuming information now. It, it's not uh, reading kind of garbage, right? I've seen you talk about like fast information is yeah. the equivalent of fast food. Yes. Right. Like yes. pretty bad for your brain, pretty bad for your body. Yeah. This is higher quality information. Uh, at least supposedly, it somebody put it in a book. The book uh-huh. got published, right? It, it's popular in, uh-huh. in many cases, um, and so what it does is then it triggers mm. thoughts mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of balance between, like, avoid all information versus, like, oh, do you just seek out the most important or highest quality information? Like, like kind of what's your day-to-day uh, kind of information consumption habits look like?
1: Yeah, so um, one way to measure that is how many notes I take. Uh, I actually calculated this because I've been doing this for over 10 years. I just went in and, count. you know, tells you how many notes you have divided by, you know, 10 years. And I take, on average, over a long period of time, 2.1 notes per day. Okay. Now,
0: 2.1 notes, how many over a decade? Mm-hmm. We are talking about probably 5,000, 6,000, almost 10,000 maybe.
1: Right? I think it would like, ex- like I think it might ex- approach or exceed 10,000, but then I also delete them. So I'm at I'm at a little over 7,000 currently. Okay, why do you delete notes that you've taken? So this is the interesting thing is even of the notes that you decide, "Oh, like how often in the moment, you know, you're watching some video or whatever and you're like, "Oh, this is so good," and then you come back later you're like, actually that was like clickbait that sounded good in the moment it sounded like so so wise but then when you just think about it for like five seconds you're like that actually doesn't mean anything it's like completely empty uh notes give you that feedback mechanism Mm -hmm. so usually once a week approximately maybe sometimes once every two weeks i'll go in look at the notes i've taken which at two notes per day would be what 14 notes every week or 28 every two weeks that's a fine that's a reasonable number when i say a note i don't mean like hundreds or thousands of words, it could be one quote, it could be one photo, it could be one thought or a few bullet points, they're very short, they're snippets. Once I do that, it's a feedback mechanism, because I see what actually stands the test of time, which then goes and I delete them if they're not useful, that feeds back into what I choose to consume in the first place. Because I I just, I have data, I know what ends up being useful over the long term. Mm -hmm. And how that plays out is I tend to read more books, tend to read more old books, tend to read books or other sources on fields that are not my own. Uh, I tend to, more and more I find myself going towards obscure sources. I find if I just consume all the same best-selling whatever that all my peers are consuming, I tend to have the same ideas. Um, So I actually have have a subreddit that I started called Obscure PDFs. If someone wants to know like specifically what I recommend reading, you can look it up, uh, it has a few thousand members. And it's like, have you ever like been passed like a PDF by a friend? It looks like it's from like the 1970s. It's like photocopied. It's like from some like Department of Defense research team that no <laughs> one has ever heard of. That tends to be the best stuff because it stood the test of time by being passed as a PDF from person to person. Uh, those are the kind of stuff uh, kind of things I like these days. And so if you're reading what we'll call high-quality information, mm. you know, day in and day out, uh,
0: I guess the first question is just like, how many hours a day, right? You, you have a business, mm. you, you have a family, you do all these other things. Like, are we talking an hour a day? Do you carve out like six hours a day on your calendar and you just sit down and you just read and everyone's jealous of you? Like, oh. like how do you actually uh, interact on, on an
1: uh, hour's basis? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, not much at all, especially these days, you know. A few years ago, I think there was one year I read like 50 books in a year, mm-hmm. which was like my high mark. But I, I don't even know if I recommend that. I was just like force feeding myself. You know, when I think back, how much of those books do I really remember? It's relatively little. Um, these days, you know, I have a team, like you said, a family, a household, um, probably at most an hour a day across podcasts, which I listen to like when I'm walking the dog, like multitasking, right? Right? Like walking the dog, washing dishes, driving in the cars, podcasts. Uh, if I get a little reading done, like 30 minutes of reading in the evening, it's like kind of a miracle. Uh, and then of course, like during my work day, like I'll just catch little snippets of of different, you know, kinds of content.
0: Yeah. The other piece of this is when you're reading, what is your process? Mm-hmm. So, um I've told a story before that uh I used to do everything audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Like and I was obsessed and 2x and like you <laughs> know, game on. Uh and I somebody gave me a physical book. It was very hard for me to read. My eyes hurt. I, I couldn't concentrate. Like I was just like, "Oh, this is bad." Yeah. So, I've only been reading physical books this year for the most part. Um and one I found like a renewed sense of really enjoying Mm -hmm. reading uh, for whatever reason. And then two is while I read, I sit and if I see something I like, I highlight it Mm -hmm. and I just keep reading. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm done with the book, I'll go back and I've got a couple of little tips and tricks that I'll try to actually extract Mm -hmm. those highlights from the book Mm -hmm. uh, and then try to compile. Right now it's very rudimentary notes, uh, but aspirations to make it much better. What is your process when you're reading a book or, or obscure PDF or anything like that? Yeah,
1: so it's pretty simple, Um, similar to yours. I think that one of the main principles is I really try to separate reading from note-taking. Interesting. Like there's some advice out there to read with a notebook right there. And so you read a passage and then you like write it in your own words or you like reflect on it or you write down a passage that you want to save. There's very limited circumstances, say like if I'm reading like, I don't know, a scientific paper where I'll do that. But usually it's so important that I get that enjoyment. Mm -hmm. That enjoyment is what makes us sustainable. You're not going to do anything that you don't enjoy for very long. And so the key to making it enjoyable is to stay in flow for me. And so that means that the most that I do is make a highlight, like a digital highlight. I'm usually reading digital books either on my Kindle, which I carry with me everywhere. I have one right here on the corner of the desk. Uh, Or if I don't have my Kindle, I can read the Kindle app on my iPad or even my phone. Mm -hmm. You know, like half the time I'm on my phone, like everyone else, I'm reading books. It's kind of like amazing that you can synchronize your progress among all these different devices. Um, And then I use a service called ReadWise. Do you know ReadWise? Uh, I've heard of it. I I use a different one, but I I think they're the same. Yeah. Readwise is is an essential. I mean, it's so crucial, crucial, crucial to all this because it just works in the background. I never have to think about it, mess with it. I don't have to go in and sync anything. It just listens or sort of detects any highlight I make, not just in eBooks, by the way, eBooks on any device, but articles like blog posts, online articles. And then it extracts just that text while keeping track of the location and which book it's from or which article it's from, saves it in my notes, which I use Evernote. And so I basically have through no additional effort besides just reading and highlighting this compendium of like several hundred books, every single little passage and idea that I found interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you said you carry Kindle everywhere you go. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So I, for a long time, for years, I would just read on the Kindle app uh, on my iPad. I find since the start of COVID, my and and also that coincided with having my first kid with my wife uh, Lauren. Uh, my attention span having Twitter on the same device mm-hmm. makes it not viable for me anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you're carrying it, and you'll kind of try to steal a couple minutes here and there mm-hmm. where you can read. And
1: so having it with you always means that you're, you're kind of ready to go. Exactly. I need the dedicated reading environment that doesn't have Twitter on it, helps that it's black and white. There's no color. There's no fancy graphics. Um, and I think the key is, like, I like to measure how m- how many seconds does it take you to continue where you left off, right? A phone is fast. Look at it. Unlock you know, swipe up, go over to the app, open, and you're there. But a Kindle is even faster. You just hit that one button, it says loading, and you're t- back to the exact point that you left off. Mm-hmm. That's important. And when you highlight in the Kindle, will Readwise pull it into your notes, or do you need to take it from Kindle and put it No, first? it's totally automatic. Yeah. Within a few minutes of any highlight that I make, it just appears magically in my notes. It's pretty incredible. It's amazing.
0: So when we think of the Notes uh, app, you mentioned that you used Evernote. Uh-huh. There's... I'm going to say a million, I don't know, maybe maybe less, maybe maybe there's actually more than a million note taking apps at this point. Um, Why Evernote? Because that's one that's been around for actually a really long time. Mm -hmm. It's not one of the newer ones. Mm -hmm. Is it just uh, institutional uh, kind of debt of having used it for a long time? Partially. (laughs) Or or, or is there something that, uh, in your opinion, uh, it works better for you than maybe other platforms? Yeah, this is one of the
1: very controversial topics in the second brain community. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, <laughs> it's very controversial. Um, so you're right. There's so many. I mean, and this is this is it's an opportunity, but it's kind of a problem. Um, you know, there's at least at least a dozen major contenders that are like kind of check all the boxes that you can you can pick from. Besides Evernote, you know, Notion. Um, newer ones like Obsidian, Rome, ones made by the big tech companies, Microsoft OneNote, Apple Notes, Google Keep, they're all options. Uh, a couple reasons that I use Evernote are just like you said, legacy. Like, they were really the first note-taking app to use this term second brain, actually. I should credit them for that. It was the first note-taking app that wasn't just, oh, a little grocery list, a few bullet points, your to-do list. It was like, no, you're creating a lifelong treasury of knowledge They were the first ones to have that long-term perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been with them for 10 years. So at this point, it's like I will for sure move at some point because there tends to be these generations, like a whole new wave of technology comes along. Mm -hmm. Uh, But an interesting result of the second brain thing that that I often find is because we're linking all these different apps together, we're routing data from one to the other. You have to kind of be not at the forefront of technology. You know, like when a new kind of technology, let's say TikTok, comes out, you can't if if you to do what I'm describing, things have to be mature. Mm-hmm. You know, apps have to talk to each other; they have to use standard formats. There has to be some stability and predictability. So I often joke that I like to be ten years behind the forefront, right? So Evernote, you know, ten years ago was the popular app, probably in three to five years, I'll adopt kind of the new generation. But I, I like to stay on platforms basically to, to sum it up that are mature, stable and predictable.
0: Yeah. And when you are in Evernote, what are you doing in there? Right? So are you just writing words and each kind of node is separate from each other? Mm-hmm. Or are you actually uh, connecting them in some way? Is there uh, something that you're optimizing for search? Like, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that you could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have enough time for you to explain kind of the entire system. Mm-hmm. But Give people an understanding of like, if I write on a piece of paper, that's a a dumb note, right? Like these are like smarter notes just by nature of being in technology. But how do you think about uh, the structure of the notes that you're taking?
1: Yeah, so there's different ways you can approach this. I really like to think of it in terms of projects. There's been periods where I, you know, I went in and I kind of nerded out about structure, about organization, created all these links, these beautiful data graphs, you know, these deep hierarchies of sub, 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 and subfolders. And over time, just because I've been doing this so long, that stuff tends to pass away. Like that stuff, you're excited about it for a few months, and then you kind of like get over it. And so I really just think about like what am I trying to achieve? What is the information that I need at my fingertips to achieve that? And then I will use some like linking, tagging, adding uh, even links to the web, some annotations, some even tables and kind of more sophisticated features. But the, the way that I hold myself accountable to like actually being productive, not just like making it like a fun little game and hobby is to focus on the execution, the completion of projects. Mm-hmm.
0: When you mention having information at your fingertips, uh, for something you're working on, when do you say I need a piece of information and you go to Google mm-hmm versus I need a piece of information and you go to your notes. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is uh, at, at the most basic difference. Mm-hmm. It's like content or information that's out there versus things that are in my
1: notes. Like what derives where you go when you're actually working on something? It's a, gr- it's a fantastic question. And, and honestly, sometimes people become overzealous with this and they try to like recreate Google mm-hmm. or like recreate Wikipedia. <laughs> You shouldn't do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, in a way, a good question to ask is the second brain is for the jobs that Google and Wikipedia can't do. Mm-hmm. So as a simple example, if you want to know a fact, like straight up facts, what is the population of France? That's Google's job. Like mm-hmm. it can find that in a fraction of a second. Any Any answer, if you have a simple question, it has a simple answer. What Google can't do, what Wikipedia can't do is more subtle questions, questions that are unique to you, questions that don't have predefined answers or even predefined questions. Mm-hmm. One way to think of it is like search on the web is very top down. You have a thing you're looking for. You may not know exactly how to word it. You may do like several searches in a row, but you have some sense of where you're going. You're like drilling down from a, a, something you're trying to find to the answer. Your second brain is bottom up. Mm-hmm. So you're saving things there that I always say, don't use your logical mind. That's for Google. Pay attention to what resonates with you, what moves you, what makes the like physical sensations are the best indicator. Mm-hmm. What makes the hair stand up on your arm? What makes your pupils dilate? Mm-hmm. What makes your sense of time slow down? What makes your heart be differently? It's like what those things are is your body, your intuition telling you, hey, I'm reading this passage. And it's sparking something subconscious in me that I can't quite put my finger on. That's the best thing to save. Because over time, if you save those things, I don't know how to explain it except that patterns emerge. Insights emerge out of the collection of things that you're saving that you would never guess, you could never search for on Google because it's unique to you. And that's your competitive advantage over time. What do you do with those insights?
0: Because I think that that's definitely true. If you're taking a bunch of notes, you'll start to connect things
1: what do you do with them? Make projects out of them. Okay. So this is a common misconception: is projects, as I define them, can be top down or bottom up. Sometimes your boss says, "Hey, you need to do this." That's a top down; it's just being given to you. Um, but often projects are bottom up; they emerge. Like most of my writing happens this way. I don't have like a queue of like the next ten things I'm going to write on the blog. That would be so boring to just like churn them out. Instead, I just look at my life. I pay attention to signals and patterns. And then it's kind of like when I start getting excited about something, you know, and that feeling of like you're 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 discovering something, and then you start to notice it everywhere. You start to see examples in everything you look at. That to me sparks a project, which is a project can simply many of my projects are just be a piece of writing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, something that I'm 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 sitting down and synthesizing all these diverse thoughts. I think the important thing is to get it out into the world. Mm-hmm. But,
0: you, you mentioned earlier um, that you spend a lot of time th- uh, reading things that are older, mm-hmm. and I've seen you talk about this idea of relevance decay, which yeah. I think a fascinating concept. Uh, explain what that means, and, and why is it so important in today's day and age when you, know, you kind of have that information overload that's happening with maybe things that are you know
1: a high degree of relevance decay? Yes, yes. So I think um, one of the most useful metaphors for information is food. There's many, many parallels to food. And we can talk about that separately if you want. But one of the interesting implications, if you accept that analogy, is that information is perishable. Hmm. Information has a shelf life. It's not commonly understood. We think of information as, as sort of timeless. Oh, let me just stash this, these gigabytes of data on my hard drive. It's there forever until you know, the world ends and it gets destroyed. But not really. Information, pretty much all information, has a, it has a time limit right? It has a a period in which it's relevant, a period in which it's not widely known, right? Like once, that's the other thing with Google. Anything you can access on Google cannot be the source of your competitive advantage Mm -hmm. because everyone else has access to it Mm -hmm. by definition. So what that, this, this idea that information decays, it goes bad. What that gives you is the impulse to put it out there. And this is where Twitter comes into play, writing online, right? Like, Like, sometimes I'll talk to people they are like, I've been doing research for three years on this topic. Oh, cool. What have you published? What have you shared? No, 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 no. I'm just compiling the world's greatest research database. And it's just like, no, you're not. Until you test it, you validate it, you actually see what the public, or not even the public, one other person has to say, Mm -hmm. you don't know if any of that information is is useful. It's also a magnet. Like, I do think
0: there's a lot of folks who, I don't want to tell people my ideas because somebody's going to take it. Like, like that whole uh, mentality pretty well uh, disputed at this point. But for these people who uh, maybe are uh, obsessive or perfectionists, and they're like, I'm going to write something, but I want it to be perfect. Yes. Part of what they start to understand is when you put something out, you're actually like putting bait in the water, right? And then guess what happens? All the people who are interested in that bait, they just come flying, right? And they find you. Um, And so in some way, one of the fastest ways to learn is to put more and more information out into the world Uh and then you will attract certain types of people who you can learn
1: from. You can get up to speed. They can make recommendations and and you're off to the races. Totally, totally. You can think of a second brain as just the preparation for that. You know, like some people have some hesitation, understandably, to just go straight on Twitter and just like input their direct thoughts. Mm -hmm. It helps to have just one stage of sort of like curation, you know, like do a brainstorm of 10 ideas and then tweet or otherwise share one or two, like the best ones. So in a way, like a second brain is like for recovering perfectionists who need a little bit of preparation, but I still always encourage them, get those ideas out into the world as soon as possible. You mentioned earlier that, uh, you're part of the self-help mm-hmm. group, mm-hmm. Um,
0: group, I don't know, the mm-hmm. industry, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. I would have said that you're part of the productivity, mm-hmm. uh, group or industry. Mm-hmm. Those two things may be the same or they may not. <laughs> How do you, is there a difference between those or is one like a subcategory of another? Does it even matter?
1: Yeah. So self-help is like the least charitable version. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Okay. But it's all the same. I mean, what is the difference? Productivity advice, business advice, entrepreneurship advice. In every case, someone self, is trying to help themselves. Um, But I kind of like using self-help just to be a little provocative. Mm -hmm. Like, like let's reclaim that term. Like this is, this is kind of like one of my, one of my bones to pick is like, yeah, okay. Some self help is scammy. Some of it is is not very useful. But like, it's people trying to help themselves. Like, let's not let's not be down on that. Like, that's one of the most admirable you know qualities there are. So I'm I'm kind of on a personal mission to reclaim the self help name.
0: <laughs> I, I love I love that. I love that. What are some of the other productivity hacks that you have? Right, whether they're actual hacks or they're things that you do. If you kind of think through your day, uh, what are some of the things that you've done where you're like these really unlocked uh, my
1: productivity or my potential? Yeah, you know, they tend to to sort of all be – it's interesting. It's like you can think of your second brain as the place where you implement all the productivity hacks, mm. right? Most productivity hacks, they're trying to get you t- to make your first brain, your biological mind, work differently. That is so hard. It's mm-hmm. so hard to just decide, okay, brain, change. Mm-hmm. You pretty much just think the way you think. You are the way you are. Like, sorry, but that's very different with your second brain. You can change things. You can go and completely reorganize it. Mm-hmm. You can go and implement entire new strategies, new tactics far more easily. Your second brain essentially is far more malleable than your first brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll just give a few examples things like morning journaling. Mm-hmm. You know, many people do this, millions of people, but I do it in my second brain in my notes so that I can revisit it. Most people don't have their, their journaling, which to me is like these kind of profound personal insights mm-hmm. in a place that it can be searched, it can be revisited. Uh, things like always keeping my to-do list outside of my head, keep that somewhere outside, right? Like a, like a, a notepad or a digital note. Um, things like always saving my highlights when reading. Things like collecting feedback that I get from people that I respect and saving it somewhere. Uh, I tend to, like in a funny way, self-help is about optimizing your first brain. I don't want to optimize my first brain. I just want to be like a kid. I just want to be free and roam around and do stupid stuff and just just follow my curiosities and desires. Mm -hmm. I don't want to optimize this, Mm -hmm. you know. But there's certain responsibilities and things I have to get done, so I optimize my second brain so my first brain doesn't have to be.
0: Yeah. When you do like the journaling and you go back, what are you looking for?
1: Patterns like, like think about. Here's an interesting thought experiment. So, what you're doing right now, your interests, your Mm -hmm. pursuits, how far back when you look in the past did they start? When was the Mm -hmm. first little glimmer that that was going to be interesting for you? Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of that? I have no clue. So, usually can't remember yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you need a journal, (laughs) right? So, so most people say years. Mm -hmm. It's like you know, I was interested in you know, I don't know. you know, cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. way back in 2013 or whatever. I only finally got into it in 2018. But usually there's these little clues way, way early on. I think journaling is a way of detecting those kind of emergent interests sooner, which obviously, I mean, in the case of crypto, like if you just noticed that you were interested in that a little bit earlier, there were huge benefits. Um, It's self-awareness. It's basically system. It's a systemized way of being more self-aware. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. They've reinvented the digital asset exchange. They give you
0: access to DeFi features like automated market making and liquidity pools in a regulated environment. It's a whole new way to generate alpha. Bullish's total trading volumes have exceeded $25 billion just in the seven months since it launched. And the industry leading order depth means you can trade confidently when you want at scale with better pricing and lower risk, all within a regulated market environment good reason to be bullish. Learn more at bullish.com slash pomp and follow at bullish on Twitter today. This episode is brought to you by LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of liquidity, and they have a 100% uptime track record through all the volatility spikes. LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology means that LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutions across crypto trading and custodial services. LMAX Digital. Secure, liquid, and trusted. Go learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash POMP. Again, that's lmaxdigital.com slash POMP. This episode is brought to you by Alto IRA. They can help you invest in Bitcoin and crypto in a tax advantage way. That helps you preserve your hard-earned money. Alto's crypto IRA lets you invest in Bitcoin and over 200 other different coins and tokens, and it has all the same tax advantages of your traditional IRA. There's no setup or account fees, and it's all you need to do, invest in crypto tax-free. Let me repeat that again. You can invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies tax-free. So, are you ready to take your investments to the next level? Diversify like the pros and trade without tax headaches. Open an Alto Crypto IRA to invest in Bitcoin and crypto tax-free. Go to altoira.com slash pomp. That's altoir dot com slash pomp. Start investing today. These systems, when you actually look at them, what are the downsides? Like- the productivity gains, the uh, unlocking of creativity, the uh, memory and, and kind of information recall, like all of that, it's so obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Are there downsides?
1: There's pitfalls, I would say. Okay. Depending on how you do it. So, yeah, so some pitfalls. One is getting obsessed with which app you use. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't believe. People spend months, years trying to decide which software to use. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. And and it's very tribal. You know, like the Notion fans, Notion is one of the apps that people use, they're like they're like antithetical. They're like the enemies of like the Rome tribe, <laughs> which is like against the Evernote tribe. Like people get like there's serious flame wars. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like crypto. <laughs> exactly. It's very similar. Which kind of points to another another pitfall. It becomes an ideology sometimes. Mm-hmm. Which app or even which technique, which philosophy. Some people swear by links. Oh, no, you have to have the more links, the better. Some people swear by tags. Other people by folders. Some people insist that it has to be top-down and planned. Other people insist it has to be bottom-up and emergent. There's all these different schools of thought. One thing I'm trying to do personally is like be this like ecumenical, like let's gather all the churches, <laughs> <laughs> bring them together, and actually – see that we have common ground. Um, you know, my book is platform agnostic. People have used, I think something upwards of 30 different apps to Mm. implement what I teach, which to me shows there are some common principles and it's not like the biggest decision in the world, which app you use.
0: Do all of the apps use text as like a basic, like that is one commonality is that
1: you can write text in all of them. You can write text in all of them, but there's two big groups, the text-centric ones and the imagery-centric ones. Interesting. They tend to be quite distinct. Explain that difference a little bit more. So all the ones I've mentioned are text. Rome, Obsidian, Notion, Simple Note, OneNote, Google Keep. They're just specialized to text. Mm-hmm. But then there's this whole other school of thought uh, that has largely arisen around the iPad and the Apple Pencil. Mm-hmm. So there's one called Milanote that is the same thing, but largely used by designers. There's Notability. Like ones where you actually open a canvas and draw, that's very different from like importing little, you mm-hmm. know, snippets of text. Mm-hmm. And they consider like drawing notes because you're, uh,
0: in essence, drawing what you're thinking about, what mm-hmm. you're looking at. And so, if you're visual and artistic, mm-hmm. um, which I am not, uh, then <laughs> uh, that could be quite helpful compared to
1: just the text-based. Yeah, it's almost like there's a spectrum of like notebooks with lines over here to sketchbooks. Think mm. about a sketchbook. That's just the digital version of a sketchbook. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating because it gets back to like how people
0: learn mm. a little bit. Yes. And, and it feels like there's a connection between how you learn and maybe how you take notes. Because yes. in some way, uh, notes are you teaching your
1: future self. Uh, yes. Right? Like, oh, I, I love that. I, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I've In the book, I say it's communicating with your future self. But mm. I, I like what you just said better. That's an improvement. It's communicating. Teaching. Yeah. Because I guess what you're really doing is you're like leaving
0: information that your future self will discover. Mm-hmm. And what you're hoping is that it will trigger mm-hmm. either a
1: memory, mm-hmm. an insight, or, or something like that. Exactly. You're yeah. teaching. You're preparing. You are You're enriching your future life by the notes you're taking now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Is there a difference between physically writing them down versus typing them? Do, do we know? Is there any studies or anything of uh, – Uh, Whether one's better or the other for like retention or or how
1: we think about that? There are. Most, almost all the studies say that paper note-taking is superior. Interesting. I I take major issue with this though. Okay. It's like anytime there's a a paradigm shift, like Uh even like in science, the new thing is not mature enough to be studied. Mm-hmm. It's not mature enough to even know what it's for, right? Mm-hmm. So all these studies are taking for granted that the paper style of note-taking is better. Mm-hmm. And then they're evaluating the two based on those criteria. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. Right. So like like one example is they say writing words or writing notes in your own words is superior for recall and retention mm-hmm. versus say copying and pasting them into digital notes. Okay. Mm-hmm. In isolation, of course, that's true. But it depends what you do with those highlights. Mm-hmm. if they become part of a bigger creative workflow where you are not just rereading them but revisiting them, remixing them, improving them and having them become part of creative projects, i think that's superior. It's mm-hmm. just h- kind of hard to study that whole that whole workflow.
0: Yeah, because they're basically just saying like if y- you put it on physical paper, you're going to have to write mm-hmm. letter by letter every single word. Exactly. You're going to have, you know, kind of the, sketched into your brain. Yes. Versus if you're just copying and pasting, you didn't actually write word for word. Yes. And therefore it was a shortcut, which then they believe is uh, inferior.
1: In, and in isolation,
0: hmm. that's true, but it's missing the bigger context. I wonder if I was reading a, bo- a physical book, uh, I highlighted something, and then at, at the end, I went and I typed uh, word for word what the highlights were if that would have the same retention as if I wrote it by hand. Could be. Right? So rather than copy and paste, if I actually typed out the notes. It could be. I mean, it's pretty similar, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It's So this is the other thing. It's not either or. Mm-hmm. Nothing in this world is either or. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, OCR, optical character recognition, is so good. Even your handwra- your messy handwriting, you can take a photo of with one of these note-taking apps, and it will capture what you've written. So, like, mm-hmm. I do both kinds of note-taking depending on the situation. There's some clear situations, paper is superior. Other situations, digital is superior. I really just try to use them both.
0: Yeah. When you're going through your day, uh, obviously we talk about reading, taking notes. Um, You talked about a journal. Are there other things that you write down? Uh, You mentioned a to-do list. How do you operate with a to-do list?
1: It's what David Allen called open loops. Often, most of the time, the things you have to do just arise like at the most random times, like you're in the elevator, you know, you're in the shower, you're driving in the car. So I just try to have a place and I use actually a dedicated app for this called a task manager, like a digital to do list app um, to just write those things down. And then once a week, I go back and actually decide which of those things actually needs to get done. Um, so you're yeah. just writing down the ideas
0: mm-hmm. as they come to you mm-hmm. in this digital task manager. Is that the name of, of the one you use? Or, or it's called Things. Things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very apt name. <laughs> um, and so as you're writing these down, you actually wait till the end of the week to go look, or will you every morning wake up and say, "Hey, what, what do I have to do today"?
1: Yeah. So I followed David Allen, who you mentioned, it has really been my prime inspiration. Mm-hmm. My whole career started um, teaching his system. Actually, it's called GTD, Getting Things Done. Uh, I just follow exactly his recommendations. Write it down when it occurs to you so you don't forget it. And then yes. So the interesting thing is, you know, when an idea arises, it's not clear what it is. Mm -hmm. In the moment, it's just just a brain fart. It's just something that popped into your head. So you write it down, and then later you come back to it with some more distance, some more objectivity. It could become a task. It could become a note. Mm -hmm. It could become something to send to someone. It -hmm. could become just an idea for the future. It's like... It's very powerful to separate the capturing of something from the deciding what to do with it.
0: Yeah. See, the things that I usually randomly get Mm -hmm. outside of maybe like, uh, uh, you know, business ideas or or, or things that I would put in the idea category, Mm -hmm. usually I'm like, oh, shit, I got to do – X mm-hmm. and uh, I've tried a lot of things from uh, all remember <laughs> newsflash doesn't work <laughs> um, to is email myself and then yeah. I go in my inbox and it's serving as like there's there to do yeah. not great uh, because then sometimes it's more complex or, or whatever uh, to actually the number one thing that I've seen work is uh, a physical note card. Mm-hmm. And I just write down at the beginning of every day, mm. whatever wasn't done from the note card yesterday. Mm. And then throughout the day, I just write down on the note card anything that pops up, uh, and I try to cross things off. Perfect. The problem is you can lose the note card. You can leave it somewhere, right? You can uh, uh, leave it at home, get to the office. I like, go, oh, shit, where's the note card? Like, it's not as great. Um, and so maybe the digital, you know, kind of note card uh, form is, you know, something like these apps that, uh, that are better. But I don't know if I could write things down and then wait Till the end of the week, only because the things I'm probably writing down on the to-do list are like more day-to-day actionable. Yeah. So what are you writing down on your uh, uh, kind of to-do list?
1: Yeah. So I capture it all. And then that once a week, approximately once a week, I'll make like a this week list, things I want to get done this week. But I can also just add something directly to the this week list or today list. It's not like I have to rigidly follow each step. Um, often I'll go days just interacting with that this week list, adding things, removing things, editing things. What the weekly ritual is is a sort of backup plan. It's Mm -hmm. like a safety net. If there's anything that completely fell through the cracks, I know at least once a week, more or less, I'll sort of revisit it. But what you described is perfect. I think people really over-engineer this. Like what matters is that things get done. Mm -hmm. What doesn't matter is the way it looks, the way it's organized, Mm -hmm. how structured it is with, you know, the the colors, all that kind of stuff is just is just minor. All right. Now we're going to dig into the real stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a team of people yes. that, uh, that you work
0: with. Mm-hmm. Can they add things to your to-do list without you uh, uh, having to
1: do it? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Although, wait, there's a caveat. <laughs> okay. Um, so we use – so my personal to-do list is in things. Mm-hmm. And things is – totally designed for individual use. In fact, there's no sharing feature. You can't, even if you wanted to, you can't share or be shared with. It's almost like a silo, right? Which means I have to I have to consciously decide whether something goes on that list. Mm-hmm. But we have a team task management app uh, that we use called ClickUp. That's the one for the team. Um, and that is managed by my head of operations because she really has this incredible, you know, architected system in there. I try to never go in there. I try to avoid it at all costs. <laughs> but things can be assigned to me. Interesting. So if someone tags me, and often, you know, the most junior person in the company, often they need something from me. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. So they'll just tag me. I will get an email notification saying, this person has assigned this to you. But then I can, I can add that in the way that makes sense to me. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, often they'll be asking for a decision. But in order to make that decision, I have to do three things. So then I'll put those three things on my to-do list. Then when I'm done, I'll just I can actually reply to the email and say done, and in the system in the cloud, it will mar- it will mark that off as done without me having to go in and, and do that. Yeah, so it, it's pretty interesting where like
0: they can essentially tag you, mm-hmm. it then gets assigned, mm-hmm. y- you do what you want with it, mm-hmm. and then when you're done, you can let uh, uh, the system and that person know. Exactly now. When you think of um, kind of note-taking or building a second brain, you have built one for yourself over a decade, Mm -hmm. which is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Do you do it for the team?
1: (laughs) Each person has their own path. Okay. It's something I really emphasize. So, like, we're in the field of knowledge management, right? It's sort of the academic discipline. Um, In the past, knowledge management was only done by companies or teams because they're the only ones who cared. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, no individual really Um, had enough volume of information consumption that they needed something like this. So over just the past like 10 years, uh, it's gone from a corporate team thing to an individualistic thing. And in companies and organizations, it was very top down. Mm -hmm. You know, some consultant would come in, hey, everyone, we're now doing a knowledge sharing initiative. You must all share your knowledge. Input your knowledge into this wiki. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it, is a very draconian thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not empowering that's in fact you could even think of that as like taking away people's power Mm -hmm. right like it's up to them whether they want to share their knowledge like your employer doesn't own every single idea in your head they don't they're buying your time not your entire you know expertise and so i resist in our company and even in our clients i resist any top-down like setting a policy Instead, each person should be trained and supported to create the system that works for them. And they look so different. Mm -hmm. Some people have like five notes in Apple Notes. That serves them perfectly. Other people have like 10,000 nodes in Rome, and that serves them perfectly. It has to match your personality. So I'll buy that.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Inside of large organizations, Mm -hmm. they have wikis Mm -hmm. and all sorts of like the institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think the thought processes. If somebody new joins, Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have to go around and talk to every single person who's ever worked at this company to get a bunch of this information. Mm -hmm. And, um, in the large companies I'm thinking of, the wikis could be as simple as like, you know, Mm -hmm. how to change your, uh, health benefits, Mm -hmm. or it could be, uh, how to add Mm up or subtract something from the product, right? You know, very, very specific things Mm -hmm. uh, that you're going to need in this job. Mm -hmm. They also can be, uh, more documentation of historical decisions. Mm -hmm. Hey, we did this. This is why we did it. Uh, uh, and we're going to revisit in two years to see, you know, what's a good decision or not mm-hmm. or whatever. Do you guys have any sort of like company knowledge management? Mm-hmm. So if you don't build a second brain for the company, like what do you what do you do? so when
1: new uh, members of the team join or, or
0: get onboarded, where do they go?
1: It's a great point. So I would say there is a role for – you could call it corporate knowledge management or group knowledge management or shared knowledge management – it's those use cases that you said, uh, documentation, checklists, references, need to know, mm-hmm. uh, background, sometimes technical information. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, the same way we asked, okay, what jobs does Google do? Let's not try to replicate those. Mm-hmm. I would say, what jobs does the corporate wiki, the company wiki do? Do Use that for exactly the things you described. Yeah. But then think about the limitations of that, right? All the kinds of information you mentioned are like very explicit. They're very structured. They need to be structured for people to make sense of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one can make sense of your random like half-formed thoughts and like bullet points. Mm -hmm. It needs to be quite formal in order to be understandable by a group. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second brain is for everything else, for knowledge that is tacit, knowledge that you maybe can't even fully put into words, Mm -hmm. knowledge that is subtle, knowledge that is emergent, Mm -hmm. knowledge that is private, knowledge that is specific to your job right? That maybe no one else needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer your question, we have SOPs, mm. which stands for standard operating procedures. Uh, we're kind of fanatics about them. Everything that has to be done more than once or more than a few times, how to publish a blog post, how to organize a local meetup, how to run one of our class sessions, how to book an interview, how to send an invoice has a very detailed step-by-step checklist. Really? Yes.
0: So take, I, I don't know, how to book an interview, mm-hmm. right? What, what it would be in a document like that? Like literally step by step, like get the person's email address, use this template on the email, uh, follow up after two days if they don't respond, like that level of detail?
1: Yeah, so it's funny. I, I'm not sure these days exactly what's on it because yeah. I haven't looked at it in so long. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it tends to be in checklist format because we're interested in the outcome, mm-hmm. the actions, right? Mm-hmm. But it tends to be not – the exact steps, because many of the specific steps are obvious. Mm-hmm. You could say like, turn on your computer, <laughs> open the browser. Like, come on.
0: <laughs> if you're doing that, you may have hired the wrong person. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> you have to you have to like assume a certain level of competence. And, and how
0: do you uh, check the checklist if uh, your computer's not on?
1: Also, right? <laughs> uh, true. You have to plug it in. You have to wake up and put on clothes. <laughs> Um, but what what tends to be documented there is things we've learned. Okay. You know, like an interview, I have learned so many little preferences. I like to be in this sort of conversational format not that one. I like to do it in the morning, not the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I like to be in informal clothes, not some buttoned-up suit. Like mm-hmm. basically every mistake I've made mm-hmm. becomes a little – note in the SOP so that we don't lose, that. you know, that that is basically institutional knowledge that mm-hmm. I don't want to have to remember in my first brain mm-hmm. uh, and my assistant can just go there note every single one of my preferences and just execute it.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you work with uh, your assistant? I'm always fascinated by people who are highly productive, especially mm-hmm. somebody like you who, uh, you think about productivity, knowledge management, all of this stuff uh, what is the um, kind of
1: day-to-day uh, interactions look like? Yeah, let's see um, it's pretty informal. In fact, our whole when people join our company, they're often very surprised how informal it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they see sort of my public persona, which is all productivity and checklists and all these things and they think that that's who I am or something like you know I'm like have a following a checklist to brush my teeth. I'm not like that. In fact, the reason I want a second brain that is pretty intentional and organized is so the rest of my life doesn't have to be, like I said. Mm-hmm. So it's quite informal. And I kind of think it's, it's much like most people who have assistants work with their assistants with maybe the one difference that everything is documented. So like half the communication, not only between me and my assistant, but on the whole team, is just sharing links and their links to notes. Really? Constantly. Constantly. Like, give, give me an example. Yeah, like if someone uh, – so last night I organized a local meetup of followers here in Miami. Um, that is not yet an SOP because I don't do it often enough. I wanted my assistant to just handle that like a week ago. So I just said, please, Victoria, can you organize a local meetup? I just needed to tell her like three inputs, you know, in Miami, Tuesday night, some sort of restaurant where we can get food. And then I just sent a link, which was from my personal notes, no shared space my checklist that I followed in the past of how to organize a meetup. And she just had a couple of follow-up questions. And then the last thing I asked her to do was, okay, this seems to be something that we're doing more often. The last thing you do, please basically migrate this from Tiago's personal notes to the team database.
0: Interesting. And so when she's going through that process, what happens if she does something that works that's not in the notes Mm -hmm. or vice versa? She does something that's in the notes and it doesn't work do you actively try to like upgrade or or, uh, improve the steps and and, and kind of processes or or is it more of a, I violated the system, like an alarm goes (laughs) off and (laughs) and like, yeah, like trouble.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no one gets in trouble. No one gets in trouble. I think that's important because we're we're all just learning. Like you said, Mm -hmm. notes are learning. It's Mm -hmm. learning across time in Mm -hmm. a systematic way. Um, I'm very interested in like learning theory, learning psychology. The two biggest ways to stop all learning is to introduce guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are the very antithesis of of good learning. So no one gets in trouble. It's just a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is another thing that people are surprised by when they join the company that is a big part of our culture that they often have to unlearn from other places they've worked. When we make a mistake, I'm happy. As long as... You know, it wasn't like pure negligence, like pure just didn't even try. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I just assume we did our best or whoever did it did their best mm-hmm. as long as we can document the learning. And this is the answer to your question. Like I'm, people, people on our team are, just know that I'm constantly saying people are – in collaboration in general, people are saying these little interesting tidbits often in passing they'll be like oh yeah we always find no nah, na na nah. or we we should never do it nah, nah. I'm always saying hey what you just said that was good write it down <laughs> really <laughs> yes
0: so you spend a lot of your time almost
1: trying to reinforce the write down the insight yes a culture of documentation you would mm-hmm. think that our company adopts that more than any but it's it's not natural I think for humans to const- it's almost like i try to live like the guy in memento every time i have an idea i might remember it it may come up again, but I just assume that, like, tomorrow morning, my memory is going to be wiped. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, back to my story of my health condition, one of the medications that I took had, like, severe short-term memory loss as one of the side effects.
0: Whoa.
1: Yeah, like, like if we talk today, I wouldn't remember that we talked tomorrow. Like, yeah. almost literally wiping my memory. And so I had, like, a window into this. I had, like, a, an experience of what this is like. Mm-hmm. When you expect nothing to be remembered... The second it occurs to you, you are reaching for a pen to write it down. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so you just got reinforced over time.
0: You, you mentioned that you're interested in learning theory. Well, it, tell me more about that space.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's largely academic. Um, I mean, our business is an online course business. Mm-hmm. We have one product mostly, uh, which is a three-week intensive program and a year-long membership that people can join. And so, I mean, I'm immersed in learning theory, teaching theory, uh, educational theory, and practice, not just theory, Mm -hmm. uh, all day long. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find it's one of these, it's like everything is learning now, right? Like, like can you say when you're learning and when you're not? Like, Mm -hmm. in your dreams, you're learning. Mm -hmm. One of the functions of dreams is learning. You are literally learning every minute you are alive. Mm-hmm. so I don't see learning and education as this, like, little niche. Oh, this thing I did for four years in college. I see it as kind of just, like, how to live effectively as a human being and mm-hmm. learn from your experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: And learning theory itself is trying to get at, like, what's the best way to learn? Yeah. And yeah. are there any insights or takeaways that you've had as you studied some of that literature? As so you many. learned about learning?
1: So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Took notes on taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many things. There's so many counterintuitive things. Like what? Um, I mean, one that's that's becoming more and more known is the role of emotions. Emotions mm. are just central to learning, even in subjects that are technical, mm-hmm. uh, very left-brained engineering. It's all emotional learning. Mm. Uh, the importance of collaboration. You know, social learning is not this like one special kind of learning. All learning is inherently social. Mm-hmm. There's actually research that. Even in the privacy of your mind, the way you actually digest concepts is basically to have one voice, like one personality in your head, teach it to the other one. Interesting. You're having this – how often do you – does it feel like you're having a conversation in your head, Mm -hmm. right? It's like even – in the privacy of our heads, we are social learners.
0: See, you can say that, and people won't think you're weird. If I said, oh, I'm talking to myself <laughs> in my head, people are like, oh, Pomp's gone crazy. So I'll let you uh, take, take that. But I do think um, it's always funny to me, like uh, uh, when you're thinking, you're really talking to yourself, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. and, and there is this element of um, uh, social aspect to mm-hmm. it, I think, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are a couple. I mean, we, we can get into this, but it's like basically the opposite of what universities do really <laughs> yeah largely in in what way like what are some of the biggest differences
0: that you see uh or, or maybe the mistakes that the universities are making oh my
1: gosh it's everything everything from you know the the time gap between when you learn something and when you put it into practice mm-hmm. for universities it's unless you're like performing an experiment in the lab it's years Mm-hmm. You won't find out, for, like, you know, especially in fast-moving fields like marketing. I took a marketing class in college. I didn't discover for about six years <laughs> that it was not useful, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, everything to, I mean, this, this focus on individualism. Yeah. It's wild that all our learning is done solo, You can't look at any... I mean, of course, you can't look at anyone's test. You can't borrow from anyone's essay. Mm -hmm. You can't get help. You know, at the most, you can do a study group, but it's kind of like frowned upon. And then you step out into the professional world. Everything is collaborative. You Mm -hmm. don't do anything by yourself. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is looking at other people's work and borrowing bits and pieces and and models. Um, What else? Uh, I mean, not having skin in the game. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence that your personal degree of risk... Mm-hmm. What is the, the skin you have in the game, mm-hmm. which relates to your emotions, you know? Mm-hmm. Are you actually putting something on the line? Has, is a has a huge impact on, on your learning. Uh, there's even things like, like this is one of the most p- kind of politically incorrect things, which is, there's this one paper, I, I found like a research study on this, that for true learning to happen, there has to be an external shock. Interesting. There has to be like the the existing belief system that you have, which is really what you're trying to change, you, you always have some existing understanding. It is so resistant to change, it will not yield to any external influence unless there is a shock, like an actual destabilization, which is so politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. Like, like think about how we design schools. Everything's safe, comfortable, safe spaces. Don't say anything, trigger warnings. Everything is made completely safe. And we're completely ignoring that we, as humans, we basically don't change until our environment becomes like destabilized for lack of a better term.
0: What what are like a type of external shock that would increase learning?
1: Yeah. So, so there's definitely, you know, good kinds of shock. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at is like, (laughs) I, I,
0: when I hear that, I'm like, oh, like, should, (laughs) should we like play really loud noises or something? Like that's maybe the watered down version versus like, you know, like, I don't know, have you hit people while they're learning? Do they (laughs) learn fast? Like, give me some examples.
1: Yeah, so there's definitely ways you should do it. Um, What's interesting is the parts of our brain and our body that have to do with risk. When we take, say, a social risk from the perspective of our body physiologically, it's as if we're taking a physical risk. Mm -hmm. Like our body responds the same, whether we're putting an idea on Twitter that we're not sure about or, like, fighting a lion. Maybe, Hmm. Maybe a difference in degree, but... Um, and so it often comes down to that. Like the course that I teach, we do a live. There's no, there's no like show up and watch videos on a website. That's no skin in the game. You join a Zoom call. We ask you turn on your camera, unmute your mic, talk, share, reflect back what you just learned to real human beings like right after you learned it. Mm-hmm. People are so terrified by this. You would think I'm asking them to like jump over, you know, jump over the Grand Canyon. They will not do it. They are so scared of saying one word in front of a group. But then the minute they do, it's like, uh, oh, there's this huge relief. And they always tell us that that was the most transformative moment.
0: It's so fascinating how many people still don't like doing that stuff.
1: They're terrified.
0: Yeah. And is it because they, they're scared they're going to make a mistake? They're going to sound dumb. They, uh, they don't know the subject matter. Like, what, what do you find is the thing that is driving that fear?
1: I think all the above. Every bit of training in our educational mm. career is what? Don't make mistakes, don't take like don't take risks. Why would you ever take a risk in your entire not just your, your educational career, your professional career? Mm-hmm. We have risk like like bred out of us from kindergarten. As if like I call this the lie of professionalism. This is like one of my one of my bones to pick, is like. I talk to professionals that have stellar careers. They've worked at the most prestigious companies, they've had the most prestigious titles. They had this idea that if they just never make a mistake, they will have this incredible trajectory of success. They'll have the life of their dreams, all the goals they want to achieve, the money they want to make. That has never been true and is becoming less and less true. Mm-hmm. You have to take a risk of some kind, mm-hmm. or else you're just not you're not going to have those things. This episode is brought to you by Amber Data. If you're
0: a financial institution entering the digital asset class, you'll need access to granular on-chain and market data from multiple venues to power research, trading, risk management, and compliance. Amber Data delivers comprehensive data and insights into blockchain networks, crypto markets, and decentralized finance, empowering financial institutions to apply traditional finance methods to digital assets. Amber Data eliminates the infrastructure setup, integrated challenges, and maintenance headaches to access digital assets data, Reducing cost and time to market to enter the digital asset class. Learn more and download their digital asset data guide at www.amberdata.io slash pomp. Again, that's amberdata.io slash pomp. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Exodus. Accessing Web3 across multiple networks just got a hell of a lot easier. Exodus is one of the most popular crypto wallets for mobile and desktop, and they just added Chrome and Brave web browsers to the lineup. The new Exodus Web3 wallet is a multi chain browser extension that lets you safely navigate Web3 and DeFi apps on Ethereum, Solana, and Algorand from one wallet. Manage, mint, and sell NFTs on multiple networks in one wallet. You can swap Solana and ETH tokens natively right within the extension. And if you ever hit a snag, world-class customer service is available 24-7. More of your favorite chains are on the way, so run, don't walk, over to Exodus.com Pomp to download the Exodus Web3 wallet right now. Again, Exodus.com Pomp. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Eight Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the Eight Sleep Pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the result? Clinical data shows that Eight sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. How do I know it works? I sleep on it every single night, and it works so well that I beg the founders to let me invest in the company. Go check them out today at 8 slash pomp to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. Again, 8 slash pomp, and you get $150 off when you use code pomp. It feels like um, the people who take risk kind of self-select, right? Mm-hmm. They have a higher uh, appetite for risk, obviously. But we could really, like, kind of fuck people up if uh, we forced them to take risk yeah. super early on. Yeah. And one of the points in life that uh, now um, I'm in my 30s, uh, a lot of our friends and things that, they're starting to have kids and, mm-hmm. and think about where do we want to live and, like, do all these different things. I was talking to a woman yesterday, and uh, she recently moved uh, from another major city. I don't want to give any identifiable information (laughs) uh, from another major city uh, to Miami. uh, And uh, she works um, tangential, kind of in a service industry Mm -hmm. to the tech industry. And her husband uh, works at a a pretty large tech company. And she had her entire life Mm -hmm. uh, the goal to reach a certain point within the organization Mm -hmm. she was in. and She reached it. And her husband had a goal professionally and he reached it and they were relatively young still. And all of a sudden her company called her and said, would you like to move to Miami? And she was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, well, you're going to have all this more responsibility and like laid out the opportunity. And she was like, that is pretty attractive. So she went to her husband and she was like, this is the opportunity. Like, what do you think? And his first reaction was like, why would we disrupt and risk our life? We've gotten, like we we dreamed of getting to this position and we got it. Right. And it was really interesting to talk to her, kind of go through the different details Mm -hmm. because ultimately what ended up happening is it took not just a single decision point. It Mm -hmm. took time Mm -hmm. for them to both get comfortable Mm -hmm. with, okay, we aren't necessarily giving up a lot in terms of the professional goals we've achieved. Yes, we like where we live, but maybe we'll like this other place more. Like like there was a, a, a mind shift, uh, a mindset shift that they had to go through mm-hmm. to actually look at it as a uh, potential another step in the journey that they were trying to accomplish yes. rather than a step backwards yeah. or a, a sidestep or something like that. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting to kind of see like risk. Almost, uh, when presented, was a, a a very abrasive thing. Yeah, but then they were able to essentially just say, "No, actually, maybe this is just a bigger opportunity,
1: yeah. and we need to look at it a different way." I think taking risks is what makes you feel alive. <laughs> and you know, sometimes when I talk about this, people think what I'm referring to is entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. I'm not. That is just one of a thousand ways to take risks. Think about talking to a stranger. Like sometimes, like I'm an introvert. I'm kind of scared of strangers, but. I've had some conversations with just random people at bus stops and cafes that just blew my mind, opened me up to a whole different point of view. Think about the risk of moving to a different country. I've lived in, I've lived in a few different countries. Those are my most precious experiences, basically. Which was your favorite? Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. What was that like? My family's from Brazil, so okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of biased. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what was that experience like? You oh were my born gosh. in the United States and then moved there. Yes. Okay. I've spent probably like of my life in Brazil. Okay. A big chunk of it. We go there like every year since I was born. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, it's just a parallel reality. It's the opposite of American culture. It's like having a black and white, two parallel realities that every time one starts to get unbearable or annoying, or I just don't like it. I can just like switch into the other. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool.
0: Uh, Another way you mentioned like talking to strangers, like I think a lot about uh, people who ask questions, right. And, um, over the years I've gotten very comfortable asking like really dumb questions, but like <laughs> I learned uh, that way. And, um, I remember, i give you an example. Uh, when my wife had, uh, our daughter mm-hmm. was in the hospital and I remember I went to the like nurse's station mm-hmm. and, uh, I was very, um, out of my element right i'm in a hospital like <laughs> i did not have a baby now i have a baby <laughs> like like this was like a pretty uh uh jarring thing and but i, I was nervous because i was like i don't want to screw up yeah. right and so i remember i went to uh the nurses station okay. and i was uh uh trying to kind of break the ice a little bit yeah. so i was like who's the lebron james of swaddling <laughs> right and the nurses were like what and I was like who is the world's greatest right and uh I don't want to get in the debate of who's the best basketball player in the world but I figured they probably knew LeBron right and so I was like who's LeBron James of Swaddling they're like oh we'll, we'll be there in a minute so a woman shows up and like she pretty much to me was LeBron James of Swaddling yeah. but while she was doing it I asked her why'd you do that why'd you do that like what about this like oh does it work this way or, you know how, how did you uh take the towel and, and do this whatever And I probably learned more in that, you know, 10 minute experience Mm -hmm. than watching a hundred YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, yes, I was joking around and like trying to be funny or whatever, but just literally asking like, Hey, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Like who can help me? Uh, It actually seemed easier in a moment where I was like outside of my element versus if I was sitting with a colleague and I'm like, shit, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. People, I think, get the protective a little bit yeah. of their intelligence, their, their productivity, yeah. their uh, position in a company. Like, it's actually easier in the hospital scenario yeah. than it would be, like, you're in a meeting at work for somebody yeah. to just turn be like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you show me?
1: Seriously. No, that's a great example. Risk, uncertainty, it's it's present in every moment. Like, mm-hmm. even in, in, in conversations. I'm here with my my little brother. Uh, we're 10 years apart. I brought him to Miami, a little vacation. And, you know, often your family members, you think you've talked about everything. It's like kind of the awkward silence, like, okay, well, what do we talk about? And uh, we were at dinner a couple nights ago, and I just had this idea, hey, I could mention, insert sensitive subject about the family, politics. And I, I could feel the fear, what is this going to bring up? Like, this is one of those things we don't talk about. But, like, it was such a unique situation. You know, we're here on a trip, just the two of us, which has never happened. And I was just, I could feel the fear, like, no, I don't want to, just play it safe, make small talk, talk about the food, the weather, anything. But I took that little risk. Hey, like Marco, what do you think about X? We sat there for two hours, unpacked this entire chapter of our family's life. It was the most meaningful conversation I've had with him in years. Yeah. It was a risk.
0: Yeah. And do you feel like in those scenarios, uh, you've just learned just jump every time or do you still
1: catch yourself sometimes being like, ah, it's a risk actually (laughs) that I should avoid. You know, by, by my nature, I'm like, this is the thing. You always teach the thing you need, right? You, you learn and master the thing that you don't have originally. Mm-hmm. Um, by nature, I am – like, pe- people don't believe me when I say this, but I am the most risk-averse, conservative, socially fearful, introverted, just person you've ever met. That is the – like, the op- – as a kid, if you saw me, I was, like, head in the book – Mm-hmm. don't talk to anyone, don't go anywhere, don't do anything new. I was just in my own little world. I, I basically had to like develop this yeah. by, f- by like you said, forcing myself to do it.
0: Yeah. Talk about asking questions. I've seen you talk mm-hmm. about open questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what What is an open question?
1: Yeah, this is one of people's favorite parts of, the, of my book, actually. Um, so I talked about projects, which is kind of a top-down concept. Mm-hmm. I'm going to create and execute a project. but sometimes you you don't even know what you're trying to do or find well enough to make it a project, or maybe you just don't have the time. And so one of the big questions I help people answer is like, like in in some sense, the most important question with a second brain is like, why, Mm -hmm. why am I going to do all this, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? It takes time. It takes energy. What is the purpose? And so one of the exercises that I have them do in my course is make a list of your open questions, what are the long-term recurring questions that you find yourself asking? And I the, the key thing here is to not have them start with do or did or is, which are like yes or no questions, have them start with how or what. Interesting. How or what questions cannot be answered yes or no. They require an explanation, some context. And so by making this list, saving it, you know, pin it there to the top of your second brain. And then every time you're out in the world, and you notice something that could potentially answer one of your open questions. Mm -hmm. Write it down. That's like your filter. What in the world will help me make progress on my open questions? Mm -hmm. It's such a uh,
0: a simple thing, Mm -hmm. but so powerful, right, if executed correctly. Totally. Totally. Um, you, you wrote this book, building a second brain, a proven method to organize your digital life and unlock your creative potential. Uh, that's the title and subtitle, but my favorite part is just at the top. Remember everything, achieve anything. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's ultimately what everyone wants to do, right? they want to remember everything and achieve anything. Talk to me about actually the process for writing the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This has been, I mean, it was a four year project for four years. Yep. From very beginning to end, it was four years. Um, what do you want to, what do you want to get into? Why did it take four years? (laughs) Great question. Yeah. Um, So that's largely typical. Typical might be like two to three years. Mm -hmm. The reasons it took four were a combination of uh, the pandemic, uh, moving – Right at the start of the pandemic, we moved from Mexico City to the U.S., also bought a house, had a kid, and basically started a life, got married in that time. So it's basically life and then also the fact that I was continuing to run the business. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the luxury of like going off and just writing a book. It was like manage all your usual stuff and also write the book. Um, But, uh, yeah, really just from – so I was synthesizing really five years of teaching this course – Uh, into book form. It was just reviewing a lot of notes, a lot of sources, a lot of research, a lot of iterations.
0: So the book is interesting because um, I I just opened up to a random page and in two pages, Mm -hmm. there's everything from uh, highlighting 2.0, the progressive summarization technique, mm-hmm. which is like a very specific uh, thing, it comes with uh, a graphic and like shows <laughs> you exactly what to do, right? And kind of how to build layers and do all this stuff. Uh, but also uh, on the other page, it's how the brain stops time, and it talks about strangest side effects of intense fear: is time dilation, the apparent slowing down of time. Survivors of life and death situations often report that things seem to take longer to happen, etc. And so, this book is uh, uh, can be very practical. Uh, it can be very academic and kind of everything in between it almost feels, is that intentional or is that just kind of how you think about the building of the second brain is it actually takes somewhat different and extreme ends of a
1: spectrum and it both are needed to be able to do this successfully. I think it's both. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, It's definitely both creating a system of knowledge management, which is what a second brain is, I think is inherently eclectic. Like that's what you're doing. You're, You're just collecting Little chunks, little bits mm-hmm. and pieces from papers you read, books you read, podcasts you listen to, from all sorts of different fields, from different industries, from different eras. There's no way that the, the thing that ends up at, at the end of that is not super diverse and eclectic. Mm-hmm. But I think my approach to it is also eclectic from a combination of being multicultural, multilingual. You know, my dad is from the Philippines, my mom is from Brazil, and we live in the United States. So this kind of the, like inherent to my life. But also, it's like we're, we're creating something new here. Previous generations of humans, they had things like commonplace books. They took notes. But never before, just like now, did people have to create centralized databases for their knowledge. That's like a new thing. So there's not like – you can't like go to a university. Hey, where is the personal knowledge management department? And just like ask them. Mm-hmm. It is a, a fusion. It's an intersection of many different fields, which is why I think it comes out that way. Yeah.
0: It, it also um – I love the idea that it's personal to you, right? Like that to me feels like the most important part here is um, I know some people uh, um, wearable stuff is mm-hmm. like a, a good uh, example. I have friends who wear like six different things. (laughs) They got the aura ring. They got the whoop. They got the watch. They got the match. like, they got it all right. They're ready to rock and roll. Uh, I know other friends who, uh, are probably more like me. Mm -hmm. I wear an Apple watch and I I like to be able to tell the time. And also (laughs) it, it tracks things kind of passively in the background. Right. Which, Which is all I need. Um, but then what do people do with the data? I'm always fascinated with. And so uh, I literally have friends who build spreadsheets and they track things and and like, they are data nerds. Mm -hmm. And then like eh, every once in a while I'll look at the data. Uh, Maybe the most I interact with is actually like the Apple watch notifications that get sent to me. Right. And yells at me like, Hey, are are you dead? Right. Like, why are you not moving? (laughs) Um, but, but that seems a lot like this second brain concept, yeah. right? Some people will be very, very deep into the details. They'll go and they'll read everything every day and they'll yeah. go and they'll search and do all stuff. Yeah. And other people may actually just do it as a way to learn an inputting process and then search you know, randomly
1: when they need stuff. Is exactly. It, is, is that pretty much the same thing? So it's funny you mentioned that because um, one of my main sources of inspiration, which is mentioned in the book is what's called the quantified self movement, mm-hmm. which is what you just described. This mm-hmm. whole thing of measuring, analyzing data about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a period for a few years when I lived in San Francisco, I was like deep in that community. I would give talks and presentations. I would like go to the, I went to the yearly conference. I was like a card carrying member of the quantified self movement, which is, you know, measuring your, 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 your nutrition, your exercise, your sleep, all these things. But it's funny because after several years, several years of that, it's like, it's, it's funny. It's like, yeah, you see all this data and you're like, do I actually understand myself better? (laughs) And not really what you always take away though is it is the process of tracking it that Mm -hmm. gives you the benefits Mm -hmm. there's no like you don't see like one number like now i understand like my whole life no but there's still value in just the it's like the the personal experience of tracking automatically gives you Mm self-awareness. And so what I took away from that is, you know, building a second brain is not very like data-ish. It's not very quantitative. Mm -hmm. I'm more like on the artist side of the spectrum than the engineer, Mm -hmm. right? But similarly, you are self-documenting, self-tracking, self-analyzing, but you're doing it in a more – free form intuitive way with words and images and metaphors and stories mm-hmm. rather than like a spreadsheet. but it is definitely very related. yeah it, it, it um,
0: I never actually thought about the the comparison there but it is pretty uh, pretty interesting. Where, um, where where can we send people to find the book and, and also to uh, to look at the uh, course that you guys
1: provide? They can find everything at buildingasecondbrain.com. We have all the places you can buy the book which is available in bookstores, libraries, pretty much everywhere. Uh, on its way to being translated to 20 different languages. Wow. Um, they can find the course, which is now a year-long membership. They can find our podcast if they just want little bite-sized episodes, mm-hmm. our blog, a mm-hmm. uh, bunch of free resources. The whole Second Brain universe mm-hmm. is at buildingasecondbrain.com.
0: Awesome. And then where are you on uh, on social media that people can find you?
1: I am at Forte Labs, which is the name of the company that produces all this. That's F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S, fortelabs.com, Fortelabs on Twitter, pretty much Instagram, pretty much everywhere.
0: Awesome. Um, I I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I I feel like you are um, kind of at the forefront of something that's going to become more important over time. Um, and, uh, as we were talking, I I was thinking to myself, like, uh, today we find it so fascinating that somebody goes on an archeological dig and they discover some, you know, crazy, uh, remnants of some, you know, historical land, uh, in some way, the second brain is, uh, the remnants of a person's life. Right. And, and, um, while there might not be archeologists that go and find them, um, it is pretty interesting to kind of see people build these out. And as technology improves, I bet you there's going to be some pretty interesting things that people are going to be able to do with this. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't be more excited. It's, I think it's the beginning of a big wave. That is the best place to be. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. We'll definitely do it again in the future.
0: Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends and I'll see you all for the next episode.